Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Welcoming back to the podcast, uh, Professor Peter Cole, uh, who who is a historian at uh, Western Illinois University, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? You are correct. In the great town of Macomb, halfway between Chicago and St. Louis. <laughs> uh, how big is how big a town is Macomb? What, what kind of population? They we're have? shrinking every day. Um, it's <laughs> about it's maybe eighteen to twenty thousand. Yeah, including the students. Oh wow! Including the mm-hmm. students, not okay. too big. Yeah, nice, nice and intimate. It's the biggest town um, in McDonough County. Yeah, I mean. Everyone's favorite county in Illinois, you know, if you know everything, <laughs> anything about Illinois. It's the only uh, perfect square. So you can look at the county map of Illinois and there is only one st- one county that is uh, 24 miles by 24 miles. Yeah, that, uh, you know, I'm I'm from Utah and Colorado, so I'm I'm pretty familiar with incredibly arbitrary uh, political geography. You know, um, the famous a uh, story of John Wesley Powell, you know, who as head of the U.S. Geological Survey was looking at all these Western states in the late 19th century and saying, hey, uh, guys, we should really draw these around the watersheds because <laughs> water is going to be the, the big resource. And so you should, you know, like as you're sort of limiting, you know, reactant in there and people are they're going to fight like cats in a sack over it if you have different states uh, all in the same river basin. And Congress was like, we're drawing perfect rectangles from longitude and latitude um, <laughs> in Colorado, Wyoming uh, and Utah. Utah is not a perfect square, but and lo and behold, he was completely right. <laughs> um, but hopefully that was less of a problem in Illinois. <laughs> Anyways, as we as we learned from Peter's book, not to get ahead of ourselves, William Penn had the the wherewithal to plan around the two rivers, you know, the Schuylkill and the Delaware. So he did, uh, yeah. You know, a few a few people knew a thing about a thing. Let's get to the introduction. Back to you, Ryan. Yeah. Um, so uh, digressions aside, um, Peter, you're just putting out uh, the second edition of a book called, if I'm not mistaken, here. Move my cat, P- uh, Ben Fletcher. The life and times of a black wobbly. And um, so, you know, to sort of get us get us started off here, uh, can you paint us a little picture of, you know, Ben Fletcher in his early life? So we're talking about a black uh, union organizer in what was the most radical union of his day. Um, And, you know, so so. When was he born? Where was he born? And how did he get sort of started in the, uh, you know, organizing business? Yeah, of course. So um, Philadelphia was also called in the early 20th century when Fletcher organized um, the most American of uh, the U.S. cities because it had the lowest percentage of immigrants, um, even though it had a lot of immigrants. Um, And it was also called the most corrupt and content city, right? Right. (laughs) <laughs> by Lincoln Steffens, yeah. one of the great journalists of the early 20th century, um, who was an expert on and one of the muckraking journalists who wrote about political corruption. Um, so Fletcher was born in this place. He was born in 1890. Um, that was during the presidency of Benjamin Harrison. And his parents, like most African-Americans, were supporters of the Republican Party. So they named their son after the sitting president, Benjamin Harrison Fletcher. Um, his parents were... Um, 
natives of Virginia um, and sometime in the 1880s moved north to Philadelphia. Why? Very likely to escape um, sort of the South um, during the sort of really actually the rise of Jim Crow. This is before Jim Crow is established, but it was already by the 1880s. Racial terror was not uncommon. His parents were very possibly born enslaved, um, although they would have been very young. Um, but we don't really know anything about his parents almost. And Fletcher never talked about, but it's very possible, given Fletcher born in 1890, right, that his parents living in Virginia were born into slavery in the 1850s or 1860s. Yeah. Um, and... At that time, uh, Philadelphia actually had the largest black population in the U.S. outside of the South. Um, and uh, that black po- population had gone back to the really the 17th century um, and 18th century. Um, and um, really was a place that, well, it was the birth of the AME Church, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Um, and so it was a actually very established black community. Um, also was the center of abolitionism, um, really in the pre-Civil War era, simultaneously very racist, um, a place where um, the, literally the day that the big abolitionist hall in Philadelphia was um, consecrated or um, unveiled, um, it was burned down by um, anti-abolitionists, right, um, which would be, of course, people who are pro-slavery um, in Philadelphia. Um, you know, by the late 19th century, this large black community in Philadelphia, upwards of 70,000 or so maybe, um, Mostly live in what now is called South Philadelphia and Center City. Um, it was not a residentially segregated city yet. Um, and so Fletcher would have grown up in a place where there were black people, yes, but also on his block, we can look at the census records um, and see that uh, his streets where there were white people living, you know, all around, right? And um, in what was then the seventh ward, which W.E.B. Du Bois wrote about in his first book, The Philadelphia Negro, um, he already said in the 1890s, right, what defines the black experience in Philadelphia is racism, in particular at work. Um, and so Fletcher's, regardless of skill, would have had a limited job um, options, women too, even more limited. And so Fletcher would have probably walked to the waterfront, right, um, as in his teens or uh, uh, late teens at the latest, um, very likely just a mile or so um, eastward to the Delaware, which was the bigger of the two rivers and where most of the harbor traffic was. Um, and young men who were willing um, and capable and uh, could find a day's work right um, on the waterfront because Philadelphia was the third biggest city and maybe the fifth busiest port in the country um, at that time. And so that's a bit of a sketch, yeah, of what maybe Philadelphia was like. And his neighbors would have included East European Jews, um, Sicilians and others from southern Italy, um, some other East Europeans, Irish and Irish Americans, um, same neighborhood actually that William Z. Foster, um, later the head of the Communist Party, um, a little older, grew up in too. So plenty of Irish, right, um, and plenty of Italians, um, but not only <laughs> – no, it's it's really interesting, um, both in work and in in his kind of being raised amidst this uh, multi ethnic uh, community in the midst of both kind of the largest northern uh, you know population of, of Black Americans as well as amidst you know uh, increasingly white supremacist violence and agitation. Um, you know, he, he becomes quite quite an important figure. And so maybe um, before we kind of give even more color to his life and his achievements, uh, we can kind of back up and say, you know, and ask the question, wh- why don't we know about Ben Fletcher? Why should 
should we know about his name? Um, you know, and then maybe we can go from there. Well, of course. I mean, so Ben Fletcher became the a founding member of a union called Local 8, which was affiliated with the Industrial Workers of the World, um, or IWW, whose members are nicknamed affectionately the Wobblies. And um, in uh, 1913, Local 8 was chartered by in the midst of a uh, strike of thousands of dock workers in Philadelphia. And out of that strike came this new union that um, organized approximately 5,000 men. At that time, the industry was all male. Um, and about one third of the members were African American, about one third of the members were Irish and Irish American, and about one third were other, but predominantly East European immigrants. And so what you've got is this incredibly multi-ethnic, multi-racial workforce. And if you look around the country in 1913, or for that matter, 1933, or for that matter, 1973, or for that matter, 2013, you will find that, like, it's very rare to find such a diverse workforce that um, has been able to overcome sort of society's racism and prejudices, as well as working people's own racism and prejudices, um, to form a union, let alone a union committed to um, revolutionary socialism, um, with a black leader in a white majority union, actually, at its founding, right? Like, uh, uh, in although a lot of cities could compete, right? Like what you could say is among the most racist cities in the country, right? Like uh, um, particularly the long-standing tensions between Irish Americans and African Americans going back to this pre-Civil War era, right? And so Fletcher was the leader of this union. Um, and for about a decade, this union not only integrated its ranks, it represented all the deep sea workers uh, on the waterfront in the one of the biggest cities in the country, um, and only through the combined power of employers, the state, um, uh, that this union got crushed. But they held on for a decade. So it was essentially the most integrated union of its generation, arguably ever, up until that moment, right? Um, and Fletcher later served time in federal prison, along with many other Wobblies, for the crime of being radical. Um, and... Uh, and despite his being, I say, like, if you've heard of Fred Hampton, you should have heard of Ben Fletcher, right? Like, period. Yeah. Right? Like, uh, same age, revolutionary, uh, African-American men um, who actually, you could argue Fletcher actually was more influential in his lifetime. Uh, not that you can compare per se, but like, you know, both cut down. Uh, but, you know, so Fletcher is largely unknown. Largely unknown is even generous, right? Even among labor historians before I started working on these folks, very few people knew about this guy in the union he led. Um, and so in my opinion, he's well worth knowing um, because of it, it questions what we think we know about, of course, the past, but also it tells us what we might be able to do in the present and the future. Yeah. And maybe can you, um, I want to ask you about, you know, this, I feel like this sort of, uh, you know, people of different races working together, you know, uh, in a sort of, a, cooperative fashion is very relevant but can you can you expand a little bit on the wobblies because these 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 folks still exist if i'm not mistaken but it's like a tiny tiny little remnant of what it what it used to be so in in what was it like 1910 to 1920ish like this is a very serious uh you know organization right and so like what was their deal what made them unique among you know sort of labor uh you know labor organizations yeah, so in the history of the United States, 
There have been many unions and actually numerous unions much larger than the IWW, but like arguably the IWW is the most important radical union in the history of the country. It was founded in 1905 in Chicago, the greatest industrial city in the country and maybe the world in 1905. Um, and it was committed immediately to sort of doing what the AFL refused to do, the American Federation of Labor. The AFL chose to not organize most workers because they were women or black or of most immigrant groups. They didn't organize unskilled workers and semi-skilled workers. Um, they didn't believe those workers were organizable, but they also sort of imbibed the racism, nativism, and patriarchy of their times. The Wobblies, from their birth, from their founding convention, I'm actually talking to you just a few miles from where they were born, coincidentally, um, uh, you know, were committed to organizing all workers, regardless of race, creed, or color. Um, and we're also committed to believe that racism and um, these problems uh, could never be solved um, in a, a capitalist society. And therefore, we're committed to socialism from their birth. They were Eugene Debs was one of the many important people who was at their founding convention, um, but then um, actually didn't just preach sort of notions of integration, but actually practiced it. And so local aid is interesting from the perspective of the IWW because it's the place where they demonstrated essentially their commitment to fighting racism in a serious and effective way. I should also say the IWW from its birth was anti-nation, right? Like that's why they were called the industrial workers of the world. Capitalism was global. So was therefore the antidote, you could say. And so like for the IWW, they actually started organizing in other countries almost immediately. There were chapters in Canada and Mexico. Um, they spread to Australia, New Zealand, and Japan. They spread to uh, many countries in Europe. They spread across Latin America. Um, they were in South Africa uh, and other parts of Southern Africa. And so the IWW had legitimate organizations in two dozen countries, right? Like, uh, and were subsequently supplanted by the Soviet and the communist left um, by the 1920s and 30s. Um, although the Soviet Union very much wanted to basically sort of co-opt the IWW because it was the largest revolutionary anti-capitalist organization in the late 19-teens when the Soviet Union was born and a communist party was founded in the U.S., right? And so um, the IWW was a union that was anti-electoral and anti-political, didn't believe in, in essentially those approaches to Socialism instead was workplace centered. And so that's why they put unionism first, right? Like, uh, and so the IWW, there's a lot of ideas in what they espouse and still espouse, as you noted, it still exists, even though it's a much smaller organization. It really, by the mid twenties, it begins a much smaller existence because of massive repression against it, um, in the previous yeah. decade. And anti-communist, the uh, the IWW is anti-communist. Interestingly, I I see some parallels to the intra-left, um, you know, divisions and, and battles today. Um, but it was interesting to see it was a, as a socialist vision based on class struggle, as you say, direct action, non-electoral. Um, but one where the workers understand power and the logic of capitalism, as did Ben Fletcher, um, based on the consciousness that was was raised and inculcated through the very work and, and organizing they, they had to do. And so, so I, I wonder what you might offer in terms of uh, both Ben Fletcher's understanding of, of how to um, you know, achieve radical change and, and abolish the wage system and, and capitalism and how the, the IWW kind of represented a certain vision of socialism. You know, there's, um, like you said, Alexi, there's obvious 
to me, parallels to past and present here, right? Like, I mean, these sorts of divisions on the left, um, which is not even unique by any means to the U.S., but like, you know, at that time, actually, when, when the IWW was founded, the Socialist Party envisioned it as a trade union arm of the SP. Um, and not that that was bad in any way, but that's the way that devs and others in the socialist camp did think about it. The, I, there was a lot of wobblies who were also members of the Socialist Party and vice versa, including Big Bill Haywood, the sort of mine worker leader who was most well-known wobbly. Uh, but Fletcher himself was likely a SP card holder in the early 19-teens. Um, although then in... When the, as the IWW became more hostile to elections, um, and the Socialist Party doubled down, you might say, on that approach, um, uh, what now we would call democratic socialism, but although that term was less in common then, but it was social democracy was actually the more co common phrase at that time, same difference, that you have legitimate differences, um, in tactics and goals, even if the ultimate goal is socialism. And, you know, at that time, Anarchism was also deeply um, influential. This is, again, remember, before the Bolshevik Revolution, right? Like, uh, and so really the two big traditions in the left is social democracy and anarchism. And the Wobblies sort of are more anarchist than social democracy. But honestly, it was also a big tent, right? Like they um, – Fletcher himself is like, you can vote if you want. He wasn't going to castigate you for voting. He's just like, he doesn't see, he see, he saw no evidence that that was going to achieve radical change that he believed was necessary. Um, but uh, some other wobblies were a bit more sort of anti-electoral, you might say. Um, I want, uh, Fletcher also sort of didn't leave us, unfortunately, nearly as much of our, his personal thoughts as I, and many others might wish. Um, Later, as Alexei notes, after World War I, there becomes a fierce split between the IWW and the Communist Party. This is replicated, actually, in numerous countries. And there's a long history to that that, if you wish, I'm happy to sort of go into. Although, for some people, this might be the weeds, right? Like, uh, But, uh, <laughs> you know, sort of battles in the early 1920s when the Soviet Union is trying to consolidate its power as a as the global center of socialism, creating the Communist International, creating the Red International Labor Unions, and understandably, many left organizations were interested in supporting the Soviet Union, um, but some became um, increasingly skeptical about the Lenin approach. And so there was this big split really between anarchists and those who are more anarchistic um, and then those who ended up being the dominant camp, right, um, which was the communist left, um, both in the U.S., but actually in country after country with some exceptions. Yeah. So, so I want to re I want to return to this, you know, the, this like diverse union thing. Um, <clears throat> cause I mean, we, we are in the midst, I mean, at least for a while, the like moderate Democrats even were pretending at least to believe that, uh, you know, it, it's, it's important to not be racist in your workplace. Since the election, of course, they've, They've uh, they've blamed the left for moderate uh, Democrats losing their house races because they were protesting being murdered by the police. Uh, but uh, so, you know, they, you have these, uh, you know, kind of anti-racism educators, the white fragility book by what's her name? Um, I'm somewhat skeptical of this approach, uh, but uh 
you know, whether or not you believe in that, here we have a demonstrated uh, successful example in a, in a time in which, like, just virulent racism just openly expressed uh, with no, you know, shame or qualifications whatsoever was, you know, I think it's fair to say, like, an order of magnitude more common than it is now, uh, you know even granting that today still is pretty racist in many ways. How did they do it? What, what was uh, Fletcher's sort of thinking on this? And, you know, how did like, how did he, how, how did he think, uh, how did he come to be the leader of this organization? And how did he think that uh, you would ultimately defeat racism, you know, in the United States and in the world? Right. Well, I can't, I don't know if I can answer that last one. Uh, you know, we're still trying. Right. I mean, so I, I appreciate what you're saying. As much as sort of there's racism in our world, in our country today, like 1915, The Birth of a Nation is released, right? It's a movie that celebrates yeah. the Klan. It results in the reestablishment of the Klan that several million men and women joined, right? Like uh, that was openly not just anti-black, but anti-immigrant, anti-Jewish, right? Um, really anti-Catholic, yeah. right? Like, I mean, so like the, the milieu of the 19 teens um, is actually far harder, right, in terms of the, um, as, as, as troublesome as our times may seem um, comparatively, right, actually we have made progress, I would suggest. Um, but like, you know, how do the Wobblies do it? So like, we should assume in 1913 when this new union is chartered that not everyone in this union knows what the hell's going on, who the IWW was, let alone that they're signing on to socialism and fighting racism, right? Like, uh, and so like, what do we, you know, what's going on here? Well, um, I always say, let's go back to the work, right? Like the nature of the work is actually collective. That's important, right? Not all work is collective, but their work was you don't load and unload ships by yourself. You do it with gangs, right? Um, uh, hundreds yeah. of men. And that means that you work together. That develops a collective identity, right? Now that collective identity may or not be revolutionary, right? But um, there's very much a working class in us, them. No one becomes goes from a dock worker to a ship owner, right? Like, uh, it's a very clear <laughs> demarcation. Social mobility is absurd as a notion for these folk, right? I would also say that they're also not interested in politics because a lot of them aren't even citizens, right? They can't vote, right? And African-Americans yeah. have been disenfranchised, right? Like, and so the majority of the members of Local Aid, actually, you don't have to convince them that elections aren't the path forward because they weren't in the game already, right? Um, you know, but like, then what Local Aid does very quickly is they integrate work gangs, right? Um, and so where previously gangs had been, and this was the case in many places where they would be segregated by ethnicity and or race, right? And employers might create that system, but then play workers even on the job off of each other. Hey, look, those Polish guys are working better than you. What are you, stupid Italians, <laughs> right? Like, and that works. It's it's really obvious, but at the same time, uh, it's his, uh, there's plenty of examples of this, these sorts of divide and conquer tactics working very effectively, right? Like, uh, so how do you bring that down. So the nature of the work um, is is sort of one thing in the favor of workers, right? Like uh, they don't. They, that's why this industry, historically and around the world, um, has a higher rate of unionism and strikes than most other industries. Maritime, ship in, off ship, right? You also have then the, the union itself is committed to it. They integrate gangs. They mandate that leadership be integrated, right? And so, like at meetings, there would have been both black and white people 
on the dais or whatever at the head of the sort of the hall where they would lead, right? Um, social events were integrated, right? They did have the benefit of having uh, this very impressive African-American leader too. Um, leadership matters, right? Like, uh, and he wasn't the only leader, but they also had Irish and Irish-American leaders and other immigrant leaders, Spanish leaders, right? And so the leaders were dynamic, wobblies. There's no shortage of evidence about um, Fletcher being considered to be a really really good speaker um, and very intelligent, if not, even though he probably didn't graduate from high school, right? Like, uh, and that, um, you know, so over time, and of course, delivering the goods. Okay, we've gotten a safer workplace. We have ended the shape up. That's a whole nother topic I haven't mentioned, but I'll mention quickly that the entire hiring system was overhauled. Once the union won power, they, instead of having to show up at the docks multiple times a day and maybe get a job or maybe not, um, Local 8 basically had employers call the union hall and, and workers were dispatched from the, by the union, right? Like, and so the shape-up was hated by workers um, because it was so obviously exploitative. Um, the famous scene from On the Waterfront, um, Marlon Brando's film from the early 50s, shows a shape-up. Yep. Um, yeah, for those of us who know that, even though that's 70 years old too, right? Like, uh, but, you know, so um, through their tactics... They started to basically, you know, I presumably, we don't know what the interior mind lives of these all workers were thinking. We can see there what's happening, right? Um, and so we see this union's demonstrating power. We see this uh, workers are benefiting. You might therefore come along more for the ride, right? Maybe you start reading the literature. Maybe you start thinking more openly about these subjects, right? And so it's a process. Um, and it's impossible to summarize what 5,000 people, none of whom left really their journals behind, right? Like, uh, but we can see that what's happening is, is that Local 8, through its successes, but also its tactics, why does it even have these tactics? It's because it's committed to um, centering workplace action, right? It's committed to actually... Um, not simply a raise, but actually something much more, right? That, well, it seems like over time that this union sticks, right? That um, the majority of the people on the waterfront seem to see some benefits. And then victory begets victory, you might say, right? Like, I mean, so once these union demonstrates power, all right, then you stick around. But we can assume that most people who joined the union didn't really have a sense, right? There was a handful probably of already members at the start but then once the union was organized, they were able to sort of become this powerful, effective union that um, I say that, like, you know, the Civil Rights Act that ended segregation was passed in 1964, right? So 51 years prior to most institutions being ordered to integrate, right? Um, this union did it and forced employers to do it, right? Because employers actually <laughs> didn't had practice segregation, right? Like, uh, so they integrated from below. That's actually a term I've never used before, but like, it's sort of a nice way to think about it, right? Like, uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating to see how miraculous the local eight was at this time, given not just the pervasive racism and white supremacy and the you know divide and conquer tactics. Um, and, and I didn't even know. So so it's interesting to, to see how this is a, a brilliant strategic response in a way to the fact that uh, as as many people probably aren't aware as, as I wasn't, that um, you know, black workers were often um, thinking of themselves as best allied with white employers, with the bosses, because of how unions were racist and would exclude them. And, and so like they would be scabs because that was like the best way for them to actually have any ability to to work in the face of all this pervasive racism. Yep. So so it's interesting how the local eight is kind of a strategic response to that um, and, and one that's that's radical. And you can see today these same 
same kind of fissures that the, the way that racial capitalism tries to divide and conquer through um, through perpetuating the racism and oppressing everyone and, and how this kind of response is, is a brilliant way out of that problem. Well, we could sort of see these things, um, you know, like. Yes, exactly what you're saying. So if I'm thinking about unions today, right, like, well, I think actually most unions are committed to organizing regardless of race, nationality, and sex, rhetorically, and then in practice it varies, no doubt, right? Like, uh, But we also know that there are some unions that aren't committed to that even, even in 2020, yeah. right? Like, uh, and, yeah. you know... The building trades. And the building trades come to mind, right? Like, and it's because they see things as a zero-sum game, right? If these guys and these women... Black men, black women, Latino women, white women get jobs in our apprenticeship programs. That means my son and my nephew, right? Like it's a very narrow, self-interested. That's the American Federation of Labor model, right? Like uh, the IWW, of course, called the AFL the American Separation of Labor, right? Like because uh, um, <laughs> they also divided workers based on craft, let alone industry, right? Like, uh, yeah. And right. so the IWW saw itself as we want everyone in the one big union, right? Now, of course, you do have unions based on sector, um, by location, but they were trying to think in ways that essentially they could you you could look at the AFL going, what are they doing wrong, right? Like, uh, <laughs> and then what are they're, they're and, and organ and, and but the key is, you know, the IWW was not unique, right? Like other left organizations and unions thought these same thoughts generally but didn't actually succeed as effectively in that time. So, like, you know, the Socialist Party was less racist, right? Um, the, the communists, you know, were less racist. The, uh, the Knights of Labor, right, um, in the 1880s was organizing black and women workers, right, um, some. And so, like, you know, like, the IWW did not imagine this by themselves, right? This goes right. back to the right. um, early socialists of the early 19th century who understood, right, that, you know, it's, it's oversimplifies matters. Yeah. That to say that class is the only identity that matters, right? Like, uh, but yeah. like, uh, but at the same time, it was leftists who were seeing that these ethnic, racial, sex, national divisions are, are losers, right? Um, you know, and, and, and so, you know, again, like we can think about this rhetorically and then we can actually act on them or not, right? Um, but, uh, local aids and the IWW more generally, um, was acting in ways that at that time unions weren't. They also were organizing Mexican workers, Chinese workers, Japanese workers, women workers, right? In other s industries and other locations in the country. I'm highlighting Philadelphia here, right? Um, but the IWW, there's, um, other places and shit, right? Like in New Zealand, the IWW was the first union to organize Maori workers, right? The first white, Amazing. the first white union wow. to go after indigenous workers. Right. White unions could have. Right. They, they were socialists. Self-proclaimed in New Zealand. Right. Like they just didn't think that to organize the people of color who are the indigenous <laughs> of their place. I, I, I think that that principle and, and I'm glad you extended it to nations um, that that principle of uh, what you might call intersectionality or the need to, to organize um, across all divisions and boundaries is so important because it's a vision that is really. Um, contrary to the kind of unions and the kind of organizations that say don't support Medicare for all even, right? Uh, so, 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 I mean, there, there's a lot of conservatism. We've talked about this with, with Rich Yesselson as well. There's a lot of conservatism that makes sense if you think about the context of the union looking out for itself 
alone, right? But but I think it's really important that we try to um, inculcate a vision of organizing, of direct action, of socialism, both in unions and um, in electoral or other forms of, of politics that uh, that realizes that solidarity is really the only way through, because otherwise that the divisions will just uh, prevent progress in the long run, right? Yeah, I, I I I would echo that. I would I would just add that. So it's also not coincidence that Local Eight was a maritime union, right? Like, and so that this industry was and is and will be international, right? And so therefore, many of the people who work in this industry on ships, but even in ports, are just exposed to um, people and ideas, and just on a daily basis, they're interacting in ways that many of us who may have more education, who might have more money, who might consider ourselves progressive, don't interact with, right? Uh, yeah, over time, the nationality of sailors have changed. Now they're Filipinos and Pakistanis, right? Like, uh, But you would meet them, right? Uh, and so this industry, and this is also not unique to Philadelphia or the United States, right? Like, uh, But shipping and dock workers are more inclined, I, I, I use the term cosmopolitan, yeah, um, than yeah. most other people, right? Like, that's also the case with cities generally and port cities particularly, but especially right. those who are facing out to the sea, which is, by definition, away from the nation, right? Like, uh, and that is important, right? Like, I mean, that's um, really sort of, and so nowadays, many of us are more international, are thinking, thanks to the internet, connections to people in other countries, the ability to travel, right? That's not new, actually. People are doing these things in other means, um, maybe a little slower, right? Um, aboard ships 100 years ago, it was actually easier, cheaper, and safer um, in terms of state surveillance to do it 100 years ago <laughs> than nowadays, right? Like, and, and in fact, I learned that this, from your book, the word strike itself has maritime origins. Maybe you can you can tell the audience about, about that. Yeah, of course. I wish I had... Well, this fact was known before I knew it, right? Like, uh, but, you know, in London was the greatest port in the world for several centuries as the capital city of the great, i.e. most powerful empire, the United Kingdom. And so London, therefore, is the hub of international commerce. Uh, surprise, surprise, in the 21st century, it's still a hub of finance, right? Like, uh, even though, ironically, the finance center of London is actually the old waterfront area, Right. Um, uh, Canary huh. Wharf. Right. Um, but, you know, if you sailors come up the Thames River in, in 1768, they want to raise. They take down the sails of their ship, which is to say they stop work. Right. Um, to stop work is was and is the best way for workers to exert power. And the IWW was all about strikes and the threat of strikes. Um, well, the nautical term for taking down the sails of your ship is to strike the sail. Um, and so the word that simply meant to basically stop doing what you're doing because the ship can't move if um, there's no wind because there's no sails. That becomes the de facto term for work stoppage in English, right? Um, and it also actually, there's a similar term. I don't speak French, but in French also, the similar term for strike is has maritime nautical origins, right? Like, uh, And so it's that tells us the centrality, in my opinion, of this industry for trade, Yes, but also for capitalism too, right? Yeah. Um, just, just to tie off the, uh, the, the, the point about um, diversity and integration, I'm reminded of the movie Remember the Titans, if you've ever seen this. <laughs> uh, the, this, this, this is a movie 
I, I took, I think, four Spanish classes from a particular teacher in high school. And every time he was gone, he would play one of about three movies. Uh, one of them was uh, remember, uh, Walk in the Clouds with Keanu Reeves. One of them was uh, the uh, Selena movie with Jennifer Lopez. Uh, and one of them was Remember the Titans. So I've seen it probably a dozen times at least. But I think the the racial politics of that movie stand up quite well. And that, you know, the kind of argument of the movie is that, uh, you know, a kind of rough and tumble uh, approach to creating, you know, a, a collective enterprise, which which, you know, sort of by definition must work together a sports team which is quite like a union in a way, you know, like it's all interdependent and everybody depends on everybody else. Um, that, that, you know, that is a, a way that if you just sort of keep pushing, uh, people sort of come to identify with each other. They'll create a, a, a collective identity, even if they come from, you know, they're, they're, they're in a Southern state and half the team is white and half the team is black. And it's very, you know, it's kind of sentimental, but I, but I think it's a lot more realistic. And your, uh, your, your research on Ben Fletcher, I think, uh, is confirmation of my pre-existing view. So that means it's correct. Uh, that, it, uh, that, that kind of approach, you know, creating collective institutions in which d uh, different people are brought together in a collective effort is a lot more likely to succeed than the kind, the kind of dominant, like liberal view about fighting racism with reading books and sort of doing like self-flagellatory type of internal inquisitions. I mean, maybe that doesn't hurt, but it strikes me as something that's just like, it's, it seems rather feeble. Um, and uh, so it's, so it's, so it's pleasing to me to see a, a guy who was operating in in a, 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 a hellishly more difficult circumstance than, you know, most, uh, you know, sort of comfortable podcasters could imagine today, uh, uh, you know, putting that into practice, you know, being like saying to the uh, 19, you know, 11 Italians of, of South Philly, like, hey, you guys. <laughs> Like, let's let's all let's all come together and be nice to each other and it working like because it, it must work and realize and realize who the real enemy is. Yes. Right? I think that that's that's key. Precisely. Yeah. Um, if I could say, um, you know, go for it. Like. So I have no comment on that movie, which I have not seen, um, but I, I, I would say that, like, you know, I have a lot of students and most of my students are white. Most Americans are still white. Right. Like uh, that. A good number of my students, actually, um, who identify as being more anti-racist, it's partially because of what they see in professional sports, um, where they respect African-American athletes. And there's a lot to be said for the impact of culture, I guess, on um, the thinking of people, right? Like, but, yeah, but I would agree sure. with you that like the actions that people take are so much more meaningful for all of us, right? And so doing something versus saying something, right? Being anti-war, yes, but you go to a march, well, it's, it immediately becomes much more meaningful, right? Like, and so for the IWW, I say that, like, uh, well, you know, uh, Local H was actually 
um, delivered the goods. Yeah, there were sort of bread and butter victories, and I think that matters. Um, you know, also working people need more money and uh, need a safer place to work and all those things before the revolution. Or, But also, they were criticized, actually, for this because there were revolutionary wobblies who were like, you know, you're too worried about the bread and butter, right? And so, like, Fletcher and Local 8 stood in several ways in a sort of uh, a stride currents within the IWW and the the revolutionary left that put them on different sides. So, like, you could praise them, as I would, too, like, for being anti-racist. And, and, and Fletcher was highly celebrated in the IWW. Um, as You know, he was uplifted for being going, look at this guy. He's actually um, an African-American leader, right? That wasn't coincidence. They, 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 they were happy to sort of, I won't say exploit, but they were happy to promote his... Um, his existence, right? He traveled um, beyond Philadelphia and gave speeches and organized black workers and other workers. But like, you know, some people said that they're too fixated on bread and butter issues, right? They're too conservative, right? Like, uh, yeah. a- and, and similarly, uh, to, as, as, as is mentioned also in my book, although it's more covered in my book, Wobblies on the Waterfront, which is a history of local eight, not only on Ben Fletcher, um, that, you know, they loaded weapons during the war and Philadelphia was a major war port. World War One was hardly a war of need, right? Like, uh, and so, you know, although the IWW didn't take an official stance against the war, it actually was worried that the war would result in more repression of it, which proved correct. Um, but they, uh, most wobblies were anti-war, right? Um, just on their, as most socialists. But of course, in country after country, the socialists ended up supporting the, the national governments in the war in Europe. But then, you know, from the North America, right, socialists are criticizing the European left for signing on in 1914. But 1917, U.S. joins the war. The IWW doesn't take a stand. The Socialist Party sort of is a more principled anti-war, although they have less influence, right? Um, but, you know, um, Local 8 was loading weapons for the war. Local 8 members registered for the draft. I mean, it was the law. Um, if they didn't load those ships, others would, and they wouldn't have jobs, and the work would continue, whatever, whatever. You could rationalize it if you want, right? Like, uh, But uh, historically and in recent times, right, um, when we read some other parts of the history of Local 8, um, depending on one's views, right, uh, there is um, – Issues that one can take exception to, right? Like, uh, were they overly fixated on these bread and butter matters? Um, there was a whole big debate called the Philadelphia controversy after World War One, right? Should they have taken a stand against um, the war by not loading weapons? I can understand that, right? Like, uh, they didn't do that. They actually were essentially neutral, but they, by, but in practice, they actually were helping the war effort undeniably, and they understood that, right? Like, and and, and others criticized them for that, yeah. right? Like, uh, um. And so, yeah, like, I mean, in some ways they were incredibly radical. The most obvious is their um, diverse membership in black leaders, right? In other ways, um, some on the left could say, could say you know, they, they weren't doing the right thing. And, well, of course, we all get to decide for ourselves. I especially like in the Ben Fletcher book that I the majority of the pages are actually primary documents, so people can read these things for themselves. And although I provide introductions to each document, like that, you know, people can sort of know, develop what they think about these matters, um, which is what we all want, right? Like, I mean, actually, the IWW said, educate, educate, organize, right? Like, and so they... Uh, what we're doing here, I mean, I'm not in the IWW, but like I'm a historian of it. <laughs> like, uh, um, but I appreciate many of their um, ideologies and tactics and whatnot, right? And it's hard to not be attracted to them. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead, Ryan. Yeah. Well, I, I just wanted to um, 
maybe you you have something else, Alexi, but I, I wanted to move on to what happened to him with prison. How did he get locked up? Um, and what was the, I mean, from, from what I read, basically a rigged trial that put him in jail for political reasons. Um, what was that all about? Well, so shortly after the U.S. declares war in April of 1917, Congress passes the Espionage Act, um, which basically um, makes it very easy for the federal government to spy on Americans and also sort of punish Americans who are um, on very sort of loose um, allegations be uh, considered traitors, right? Like uh, to spy on the country. Um, later supplemented by something called the Sedition Act. Um, these laws were later repealed and subsequently were widely seen as mass um, overreaches of the First Amendment, but nevertheless were in full force. Um, and the federal government used the Espionage Act and Sedition Act. And so soon as the war begins, Congress gives Wilson, the president, um, powers through the Department of Justice to basically go after anybody who might um, interfere with the war effort. Not coincidentally or coincidentally, the IWW organizes industries and many war-sensitive subject, right? Um, shipping, agriculture, timber, mining, right? Like, uh, you might think it's a plot, right? And that the IWW is going to pull off a general strike, right? Um, declare the one big strike that was going to unleash the revolution, right? Well, there's no evidence that actually they were planning that, but it is true that they didn't mind striking during the war. Why? Because there's labor shortages. You've got greater leverage, right? Like, uh, and so, yeah. you know, what loyalty do I have to this sort of foreign war? U.S. wasn't attacked, whatever, right? Like, uh, and so the federal government uses the Espionage and Sedition Act. The first group of people, when we think about the Red Scare, we think about communists. In fact, the first victims of the yeah. Red Scare were the Wobblies, right? In 1917. Well, hang hang on. Ba ba back up just a little bit. Tell, like, what what is the Red Scare? What are you talking about? Um, you know, so so there's these, there's these sort of anti-anti-war uh, measures, but then there's a much more explicitly political repression effort that happens the first red scare as as counterposed to the second red scare which happened you know that's the mccarthy era right yeah, yeah so, totally. so what is that about well they're the same in a way but like the um espionage and sedition acts give the federal government the tools they need in order to punish people who are anti-war or are perceived to be as such the wobblies internationalists are of course uh the and the most powerful, numerically significant radical organization in the country in 1917, right? Like, is the first target. Yeah, like, uh, so they start being spied on, and then in the fall of 1917, several hundred Wobblies are indicted by the federal government, um, and then over the next few months arrested and brought to Chicago in the spring of 1918 for a wartime trial, right? Um, uh, this trial, the longest in U.S. history. Was, was Eugene... Was Eugene Debs um, thrown in jail before or after around that? Because I think that's also how they got him, right? You're right. It's the same laws. Debs was actually um, prosecuted and imprisoned later, um, slightly later, right? Okay. Like, uh, but uh, the, the Debs goes to prison a little later than this big wave of wobblies, right? I should say there was also local, gotcha. local and state repression, um, but like at this time. The about a hundred wobblies, including Ben Fletcher and five other Philadelphians who were involved in local eight. Um, uh, are part of this mass trial, right, where um, the longest trial in U.S. history up until that point, um, where in Chicago, which is where the IWW was founded, right, and where they're headquartered, right, um, is this mass trial. And after over four months, jury comes back in under 30 minutes, 
all guilty on all counts, right? And so 100 people sentenced to prison for 10 to 30 years getting 10 to $30,000 fines, which now would be more like 100, 100 to a $500,000 fines, right? Um, and then quickly sent off to Leavenworth, the most well-known federal penitentiary in eastern Kansas. Um, Debs would later serve in first West Virginia and then at, at a federal pen in Atlanta. Um, Leavenworth, though, becomes this place where hundreds and hundreds of radicals are thrown together. Someone, some people have called it the University of Radicalism because these people started to organize themselves on the inside. Right? Um, so Fletcher is the only African-American on this trial. Um, he actually becomes somewhat famous because he's very smart as well as clever and funny. And so, you know, he utters quips that are actually widely published at the time in the newspapers, not just the left, um, but nevertheless, uh, but actually in the mainstream, so-called mainstream press. I was just looking at a newspaper from New York City, right? And it said, oh, uh, you know, when, when the sentences are being read out, Fletcher says, um, the judge is not using proper grammar. Our sentences are much too long, right? Um, and that story has been repeated multiple times. Big Bill Haywood, who later put it in his memoir, right, is also a source of the dissemination of these stories, right? Like uh, Fletcher, I should also say, was before he was arrested, he was living in Boston. He had uh, been organizing in Baltimore and then in Norfolk, Virginia. Um, he was actually threatened with a lynching um, uh, in Norfolk in the early 1917 and then um, jumps a ship to Boston, where he then continues to organize. And it's in Boston where he's actually first being spied on. And so even though he's a Philadelphian, right, the first federal records that we can see of him from the Department of Justice during the war is in June of 1917, right? Like, uh, is that Fletcher's already being spied on, um, and we should assume that actually many, many other lobbies, too, in other cities, right? Like, uh, um, laying the groundwork, right, for the arrests and raids that the, the Department of Justice cre um, unleashed in the fall of 17, and um, Fletcher and others then, well, Fletcher got 10 years, and so in late 1918, he and a bunch of other wobs were thrown on a train, from Cook County Jail, right, which is also where the Haymarket anarchists were found guilty, where B.B. King later performed a concert, right, like uh, it's actually, I think, the largest prison in America. Um, they were shipped out on rail to Kansas um, on a special train, um, and uh, supposedly Fletcher conducted mock kangaroo trials aboard um, the uh, railroad cars while they were en route to Leavenworth, where he ended up serving... Two and a half years over a four-year period because he and a bunch of others got out on bail a couple years into their terms, and then later went back to Leavenworth. Before then, they were later had their sentences um, commuted, and then much later pardoned. And so Fletcher, well, is a political prisoner, right? Like I mean, like other Wobblies, uh, really, they were. There's no evidence that they were doing anything to interfere with the war effort. There's evidence that they were anti-war in principle. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, in fact, aren't there federal officials who are confused? Like, wait a minute, what, how exactly did they break the law? I don't really see it. Right. <laughs> I mean, in the case of the Philadelphians, they're actively loading war materials, right? Like, and so the yeah. district attorney for Eastern Pennsylvania actually, um, writes multiple letters on his behalf to, uh, to get pardoned. Um, cause he's going, you know, we weren't even consulted, right? I mean, it's very clear that the federal department of justice working with the American Federation of Labor, um, 
uh, as a junior partner, just wanted to get rid of the IWW. Later, Ryan, um, as in just months later and a year later, other radicals, communists, anarchists are also targeted by the federal government. Um, and so the, the color red is often associated with communism, right? Like, so that the first red scare, um, which lasted into the early twenties involved the arrest of thousands, the deportation of thousands of radical immigrants, including most famously Emma Goldman, right? Um, then after World War II, what sometimes is just called the Red Scare, but I think is, I, I prefer to say the second Red Scare because a lot of people are less yeah. aware of the first Red Scare, um, which, uh, you know, similar issues, different issues, of course, um, but the targets are the same, right? Those who are socialists of various stripes are the primary targets. And I think generally the people are, are less knowledgeable about the early 20th century radical movements and actions. I, I think there's just uh, a, a tremendous amount of, of, um, of power and courage and, and uh, agitation that people don't know about. Um, but, 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 you know, I, I'm really, I want people to know, so I want everyone to buy your book and read about Ben Fletcher, but to give a little teaser to, to, to talk about how he kind of embodied certain excellences, virtues. Um, you know, I, I love his, his self-deprecation and humor in, in addition to his wit and his ability to, to kind of respond in the moment to racists and white supremacists who, for example, uh, you know, ask, try to, try to do kind of like, uh, the, the way that maybe Jesus was trying to be caught by, by asking if, you know, people should pay taxes. Uh, he, he's asked about miscegenation and, and are you trying to say that, that, you know, uh, whites should marry blacks? And, and he, he very cleverly says, well, you know, for some reason, I don't see any other blacks that are as dark as I am, implying basically that whites and blacks are already, you know, intermingling and, and having kids. And, and, and so it's just, you know, he had, a, he was very clever and witty, um, and, 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 you know, had this, this great humor. But maybe you could speak more about the kind of, um, talents and excellences he had that helped him achieve what he achieved. Yeah. You know, I don't know, honestly when he was a young man or a boy, what his parents were thinking about these matters. I wish I did, right? Um, we can see through his actions. We don't have recordings of his speeches. We do have a handful of his letters, right, as well as some of his public writings. I mean, but like, you know, Fletcher was very dark-skinned. We have some uh, photographs, not many, but some. And of course, most famously, James Baldwin made some sort of comment in the 60s that was very similar to what Fletcher did 50 years prior when someone asked Baldwin about miscegenation, that is sort of mixed race sex, right? That like, he's like, you're not afraid of you. What does he say? You're not afraid yeah. of uh, yeah. me, he, Mary. He says of your daughters, you, you know, uh, you, you don't want your wife's daughters to, to be married. Yes. Right. Um, but, but, but basically like su suggesting that like, you, you know, you're fathering lots of kids. You just don't want your official children to, to get married in inter intermix. Exactly. Right? Because yeah. there's, like you that. know, centuries of, um, Enslaved peoples were raped by their masters, right? Um, and yeah, that is why there are mixed race people in the United States of America, right? Like uh, as in every other slave society, right? Like, and so Fletcher's family, who knows whether his, the women in his family had been fortunate enough to escape rape, probably not. Um, but like it, it is sort of, uh, you know, 
Trotsky understood very well, right? Like, I mean, the whole purpose of, or I should say Engels, right? Like, uh, the purpose of sort of monogamy is to sort of that men can pass on their wealth to their anointed heirs, right? Like, uh, and that's why in the 1600s, right, the Virginia Colonial Assembly changed the law so that the child follows the legal status of the mother, not the father, right? It's because even in the mid 1600s, there was all these white men who were having kids with these black women and, uh, they wanted to sort of make sure their wealth went to their, the, the, the white kids, right? Um, so too Thomas Jefferson's family and many others, right? Like, uh, Fletcher would have understood this better than I could have, right? Like, uh, and Fletcher was, um, but you know, making these sorts of jokes, well, of course, he made that comments, uh, responding back. We don't know quite the timeline, but you know, shortly thereafter, he sort of boarded a ship to get the hell out of Norfolk, right? Um, because right. the lynchings, right. there was a hundred a year happening in the 19 teens, right? Like that's one every, like, uh, that's, that's two a week, right? Uh, so he was courageous at the same time. He was courageous. Yeah. Right? I, 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 I'm inclined to agree, of course. I mean, and so I think he was, very brave and and he you know of course he serves years in prison for his um, beliefs he comes out of prison he's still committed right like he uh um he was never as important and influential um because the local eight was weakened as a result of the repression um but he didn't change his views personally and most wobblies didn't right like if you were radical enough to join the IWW, you might not be pay a paying member, right? Like, uh, but you were um, probably still believed in those values. And well, we know from his correspondence um, into his late years and based on his friends' recollections that that was the case too. Um, he moved in 1931 to New York City. Um, why? I'm not sure. Um, but he lived his last 18 years in New York and well, he hung out with Wobblies and anarchists in New York City and thereabouts, right? Like, uh, and so he continued to, and several other members of Local 8 who had been imprisoned with him, E.F. Dory and Walter Neff, who married Jewish immigrant sisters, um, uh, all ended up in Bedford Stuyvesant in a time when Bed Stuy was not yet entirely African American. Um, and, uh, because Dory and Neffs were, um, European immigrants, um, and the children of immigrants, and uh, and then also a famous anarchist wobbly named Sam Dolgoff, um, who ha- is a sort of really brilliant writer, who was a born in New York City uh, Russian Jewish uh, kid, but who becomes really uh, one of Fletcher's closest friends in the 30s and 40s. And thanks to that, his sons get knew Ben Fletcher, and so I've met one person who knows Ben Fletcher well. Um, in oh, the late forties, wow. he hung out as a child with his father and Ben Fletcher in Brooklyn and in Manhattan at the old Wobbly Sailors Hall in, on South Street. Um, and that's to, for me personally, but as far as I know, there's no one else who's still living who knew Ben Fletcher better than Anatole Dolgoff, who's now around 80 years old and lives on the Lower East Side where he was raised, um, by his Jewish anarchist radical parents, <laughs> you know? Wow. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Just down the street from the Jewish forward building, which is now, I think, probably condos. Um, but uh, then was uh, actually a daily socialist Yiddish um, newspaper, right? That was uh, published, um, uh, yeah, on the lower side of Manhattan. Much has changed, as we all know. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, I, I just have one more question, a, a little more holistic, perhaps. Um <clears throat> You know, reading reading through your book and and reading through the, you know, the many writings and and speeches of of uh, Ben Fletcher you've collected, um, 
it, it strikes me, I mean, maybe inaccurately, but I don't know. I mean, it, it, it seems that, uh, organize like labor organizing when he was active in the 19 teens was much more vibrant and much more successful than it is today. Um, I mean, there have been, you know, some, the, the fight for 15, you know, there, there are certain union drives going on and like media organizations and so on. But like the, the union density in this country has just been falling for f- like 40 years, uh, if not longer. And, um, you know, there, there haven't been any kind of the, 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 the like mass, like, like, organizing the big GM factories in the thirties, you know, they'll, they'll like jump the, uh, you know, the, 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 the unionization rate by like a percentage point in a single week. Uh, and I wonder, you know, what you think about why that is, is it, you know, that the, 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 the structure of the economy is different, like a labor, uh, you know, workplaces are much more dispersed, uh, you know, is it like kind of a different media environment? You know, there's a lot of stuff in there about like the, the stuff Fletcher wrote for newspapers and so on. You know, it's suggesting that he thought that, uh, you know, uh, media was important. Um, well, what do you think, uh, it explains this kind of divergence? It seems like a, it should be a more fertile time for labor organizing than it is, at least for the moment. Well, that's a very big question, and I don't have uh, the, the best answer, but I have an answer. Speculate. Yes. Well, so, you know, many labor historians, but also union people, organizers and the like. Um, so remember, or if you didn't know it for the first time, you will learn, this is before workers in America have the right to unionize or go on strike. And those law, those rights, which you could say are human and uh, are established in the United States in 1935, right? Like, uh, yeah. And so... They were operating in a more hostile environment than workers today, right? Um, in certain very important basic ways, the legal structures, right? Like uh, yeah. the state is powerful. There was no uh, uh, National Labor Relations Act. There was no uh, NLRB, National Labor Relations Board. You know, like... If you follow the rules, I mean, the rules are kind of rigged against the workers even even still, and you go and you file your union petitions, you will get a union formed uh, that will have the force of law behind it. And if the employer fails to recognize it, you can, you, you know, like you'll have the government behind you. That's the thing, right, that you're saying that didn't exist when he wasn't like you were on your own. So not only could days. you be fired for any reason, right, um, including unionizing or going on strike. You also, um, many, uh, the Supreme Court had upheld that um, what were called yellow dog contracts were constitutional. Um, a yellow dog contract yeah. was slang for basically as a condition of employment, you are not in a union, and if you join a union, that's grounds for automatic firing, right? Like, And so millions of American workers had signed yellow dog contracts for no alternative, right? And so now you could argue, however, that maybe – 
that's uh, the legalistic framework that has been created since the 1930s and has, has been undermined so much, and maybe even from the start, that it basically de-radicalized workers, right? And that there's big debates over among academics and sort of union people who go back to the history you know, in the late 30s and early 40s, basically, as this was being worked out just after the laws are happening and contracts are being signed, right, the, the use of the strike, the uh, um, who is in the union and who's not in the union, foreman, yes or no, right, those sorts of questions, right, like are being worked out. And, well, those were the – in terms of union organizing and strikes and victories, even the depths of the Depression, they're making huge gains, right? Like uh, – so yeah. some people would say that actually, therefore, the entire period of the National Labor Relations Act was a wrong turn. You can make the argument, right? Like uh, now you can make a counter arguments too. And even though union density is low, well, the average American actually is better off financially than they were, say, in 1910 or 1920. Um, the average American <laughs> has health insurance, has access, has retirement. You can make actually, you can also make the arguments that unions created those even for non-union workers, right? Like, uh, but the point is, is that, uh, one, you're correct that in a time that was far more legally hostile to unions, let alone revolutionary ones, right? Like, uh, it's amazing what the IWW accomplished, right? You can also say is that there actually obviously are some lessons that could be taken, right? Okay. The legal system now sort of rigged against um, American workers has been for decades, right? What can we do within the system thinking about how the Wobblies do it? And, of course, there are people who think about this. Can you organize work workers even without a formal union and contract? Yes. If you have a core group of militant workers who are able to push, basically, they often can get victories. These are often small victories in some ways. But again, as we were saying earlier, those are what you build on, in my opinion, in order to sort of get the bigger ones, right? Like, uh, and so in my opinion, there's much to be learned from IWW organizing even before the existence of um, the formal right to unionize in the U.S. And obviously this is not applicable only to the U.S., right? Like, because uh, um, yeah. union decline is global, right? Um, in country after country, union density is much lower than it was in the 70s and 80s. Right, like just about yeah yeah this is really this is really tricky because this maps onto a few different fissures right like in, in a way you're describing a kind of um anarchist vision versus a, a status leftist vision or you might even call reform versus uh, revolutionary division because when it comes down to the subject formation so if you need the militancy and the solidarity how do you form the kind of people that will do those actions to use the power right in the ways that are necessary and and so what kind of what you're saying is like there's a there's an understanding that in some ways if you rely on the state you create more passive uh less you know, active, mil less militant uh, workers or agents who won't do the things that need to be done because they're relying on the state that will do the things. Uh, on the other hand, that's also more precarious and, and perhaps less, um, you know, uh, wide sweeping in, in, in how kind of applicable the victories are, as you were suggesting. So, so it, it's, it's kind of, I think, a. Um, a, a tricky thing today to figure out how we can have both, right? Because we do need to have that subject formation where people don't just rely on others or the states, you know, and, and to have that kind of active political um, participation, even just in your uh, workplace or in your local community and, and doing direct action. But you see these fissures in DSA today. I mean, in Philly DSA, there's this massive struggle over mutual aid because the, the, the Marxists can't stand it because it smells of anarchism. 
and the anarchists are like, what's your problem with mutual aid? We're literally just helping people. And, and, the, and the Marxists are like, no, fuck that. We're not even going to let you help people because we think you're undermining the, the you know, the anyway. So, so, so this is relevant today. And, and I just wonder, uh, cause you, you posited both the, the kind of both sides of the argument, how you think through, um, you know, ways to organize and activate people to, you know, the class struggle to, to the revolution um, and how maybe we can kind of bypass the, these maybe unnecessary divisions. Yeah. So those are important matters, right? Like, I mean, I think about another term, although I've used the term anarchist, um, another term often used to describe IWW type unionism is syndicalism, um, sometimes also called anarcho syndicalism. These are obscure terms, admittedly, right? Like, uh, but syndicalist, right? Or anarcho-syndicalist, those are direct action. That means that workers, where do people have power? People have power in the job. Therefore, therefore they should use power in the job, not in the ballot box or any other place, right? Workers have power as workers, right? Okay. Does that require being anti-capitalist? Obviously not, right? Like, uh, let's talk about the Teamsters, right? Like, uh, you know, they use direct action tactics. They don't cross picket lines. Some are actually left-wingers, but many aren't. Right. Um, and they actually are very effective at sometimes narrow ends, but nevertheless, very effective tactics, working class tactics. Um, and that so that Teamsters considered to be a corrupt anti-democratic union by many, um, understandably so. Right. Like uh, a lot of their members are actually fully on board. Right. Like uh, with uh, this is where we've got power. We're not going to deliver. You know, we're not uh, to sort of uh, scab shops. Right. Like, um and it's in their contracts and, and the legal things matter, right? They were powerful enough to basically allow them uh, to get contracts where they don't have to cross picket lines, right? Like, uh, and so uh, there are other examples of unions. However, most of us in unions, including me and the American Federation of Teachers, have no strike clauses um, because employers demand that, right? Like, uh, and unions accepted that. Maybe most workers actually went along with that without a conflict. Who knows, right? Like, uh, but I think... We need to be thinking about these issues, right? Um, how do you build working people's power? Um, well, get, if you get involved in a direct action or two, I would bet that some significant percentage of those people involved will sort of learn. Yeah. Um, yeah. Symbolic strikes, um, I think, have tremendous potential. Um, but also are just empowering, right? Like, uh, um, and so. I mean, I appreciate that those mutual aid versus not are sort of can be thorny matters, I suppose. I don't know anything about the Philly DSA. Um, but like, <laughs> you know, I could guess that um, these issues are animate many similar conversations, right? Like uh, um, I always try to be a uh, non-sectarian by going around and avoiding getting involved. And so I'll go, well, let's think about what else we might do, right? Like uh, most people can sort of get on to the idea of that unions are good, and then the question would be sort of how do you sort of then mobilize union members? Obviously, that's not a guarantee. There are conservative union members, many of whom voted for Trump, including Philadelphia dock workers, right? Like, uh, and so we uh, have to be mindful of that, right? Like, uh, um, fewer of them than maybe other white working class people, but like, uh, nevertheless, some, right? Like, uh, they haven't learned the lessons of Ben Fletcher clearly. I was going to say, I bet Ben Fletcher would have convinced him not to vote for right. Trump. 
<laughs> I have Very some possibly. friends. I have some friends in local 1291, which is the Philadelphia ILA local, which is much smaller um, because Philadelphia is a much smaller port. Who are giving out copies of my book to their fellow workers, um, nice. including the local elected leaders. Um, yeah, Love yeah, it. yeah. Um, yeah, who knows where that goes, right? Um, but um, there are at least several members of the current Philadelphia Dock Worker Union, Local 1291, who are big fans of Ben Fletcher um, and very much want their co-workers to be as well, right? There's nothing better as far as they'll be much more successful than I ever could, right? Like, uh, although the book is helpful, right? Like, uh, Great. Well, uh, that's all the questions I had. Um, any final comments before we let you go, Peter? No, thank you. I mean, I very much appreciate the opportunity to speak to you both and to your listeners. Um, and it's, of course, very enjoyable to sort of have people who have read my book who want to talk about it and think about it and engage with it. Like, that's what <laughs> every author wants, right? Like, uh, and the opportunity to sort of then do more of that, right? Um, but, you know, like many labor historians, you know, I'm excited about this history because um, I'm excited about my time in the, the near future, right? Like, and so I, uh, the IWW is a very small organization, like you mentioned earlier, Ryan. Um, but yeah, they've like tripled now. in size actually in the last five years, like um, the DSA <laughs> nice, um, nice. and some others. Yes. And this is not unique, actually. The IWW is growing in numerous other countries countries in this past decade. Um, I know Wobblies in Germany. I know Wobblies in Ireland. I know Wobblies in England. I know Wobblies in South Africa, right? Like, uh, I correspond with people. Love so it. like, you know, the internet age has ups and downs, but like people finding what basically their tribe, you might say, and then maybe growing that tribe. Yeah. Well, that's happening, right? Like, uh, we'll see how much these things yeah. grow, but I mean, it's, it's, it, uh, one can look at the present and be, there. yeah, hopeful. I think there's, there's reasons for hope as much as there are despair. Yeah. Ben, ben Fletcher's, you know, said, we're not clairvoyant. We can't see the future, but, uh, but he believed if, if we, if we did the work, right. If, if we, if we, f we fought the fight, um, that, that, uh, the revolution would come. So I, th I think, I think that's a good note to end on. And, and thank you for your, your work, because I do think theory and praxis have to go together. We have to learn from the past. And, uh, and Ben Fletcher is a, is a, is a good story for, for our listeners and others to, to learn about so that we can all fight for that future. Right. Together. Working class heroes, right? Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. and he yeah. said that by oh, the way yeah, while he was in Leavenworth right he wrote that letter while he was you know right. in the belly of the beast right like uh, yeah look at know, that so if he could be hopeful that's the right then, attitude of course it was a year after the Russian revolution right had begun <laughs> so, like, <laughs> so that that's a little hope yeah, yeah. Um, but thanks again cheers yeah. comrades cheers thanks thanks for coming on yeah glad to have you yeah. back and the book is called Ben Fletcher Life and Times of a Black Wobbly we will link that in the description Peter Cole, thanks for coming on the show.